description of what life looks like and how we should think, how we should feel, how we should live. Father, I pray you'd open our eyes to the glorious truths of the gospel this morning in this text. Uh, without you, Father, Lord, we, we would be blind and wandering around in the dark. And so we ask whether you would give us spiritual sight, that we see what's truly there, and our lives would be changed because of it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Before I forget, one announce, one other announcement I meant to make mention of is be much in prayer for Mark Billington. He's going into uh, surgery on Tuesday uh, to, to repair some of his foot. Uh, so again, be much in prayer for, for Mark. Okay, Psalm chapter 1. And before we kind of dive into the text this morning, I wanted to just back up for a minute and uh, say, well, why, why Psalms? Why now? Is it because Summer of Psalms just has a nice ring to it, or what is it? Uh, so I have three reasons uh, why we should spend a whole season looking through what has historically been uh, Israel's songbook, right? Uh, so Israel's songbook of Psalms, uh, and, and three reasons why we should study it, why we should preach it, why we should commit them to, to memory. And the first is very simple, that the Psalms teach us about God. Think about it. Songs that teach us. Not only do they teach us about God, they teach us about man and about all of life. This book of Psalms is found in what's called, historically been called the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Uh, and by the Psalms, they are uh, meant to show us what life is supposed to truly look like. Teach us about God, teach us about ourselves, and teach us about all of life. Number two, uh, the Psalms connect with us emotionally. Now, I know we're Baptists in here, and we don't really know what emotions are. Thus, the need for the book of Psalms. Because in, our, in the book of Psalms, we're, we're taught to understand a wide variety of emotions. Here's just a, a quick preview. Uh, in the book of Psalms, we're taught what it means to be lonely. Psalms 25, 16 says, I am lonely and afflicted. The Psalms teach us about love. Psalm 18, verse 1, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Psalms teach us about all when it says, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Psalm 33, verse 8. Sorrow. My life is spent with sorrow. Psalms 31, verse 10. It teaches us about regret. I am sorry for my sin. Psalm 38, 18. It teaches us what contrition means, what discouragement and turmoil mean. Shame and exaltation, marveling and delight, joy and gladness, fear and anger, peace and grief, desire and hope. All of these emotions are found embedded within the Psalms. Brokenheartedness, gratitude, zeal, pain, confidence. And if we're to think and feel as God would have us think and feel, then, brothers and sisters, we need the book of Psalms. It was said that, that all Christians ultimately end up in the book of Psalms either from a love of God that draws them there or the pain and the turmoil of life which drives them there. So brothers and sisters, this is why we will preach the Psalms this summer. And third and lastly, uh, now don't, don't close your Bible, we ain't leaving that quick. I, I said I'd preach soon. but uh, Number three, the Psalms are inspired by God himself. Right? These are not merely words on a page that David wrote so that all the congregation could sing, much like we just sung. What makes these songs different than the songs that you and I sing is these are inspired by God themselves. Listen, here's how Jesus thought about 
the Psalms. And in Mark chapter 12, he, he quotes the Psalms in uh, Psalm 110, and he says this, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So, so Jesus is quoting Psalm 110 here, and yet he adds that David himself said in the Holy Spirit. Jesus, therefore, giving validity to the Psalm 110 itself as all of it spoken by God. Not only that, but Jesus quoted Psalm 82 in John 10, 35. He says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, as he says, scripture cannot be broken, right? So this is Jesus himself referring to the book of Psalms as scripture. Therefore, brothers and sisters, I commend to you that the Psalms are worth your study, worth your memorization, worth us preaching this summer. So with that, let's, let's look and read together Psalm 1. Here's what it says. Blessed is the man who walks, not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like shaft. That the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So just a few observations, and then we'll get out of here this morning. Psalm 1-1. Look at this. It says, Blessed is the man. Notice that, first of all, the Psalms want us, as an introduction, to realize that there's a destination to which we're all headed. The destination to which we are all headed. And the psalm gives both of these pictures. The first out of verse 1 is the blessed man or woman. Blessed. And in the the last verse, the the, the wicked or the way uh, of scoffers, right? These are the cursed. Brothers and sisters, when the world tells you that there's many paths to heaven, don't believe them. It's just this past week I was sitting with uh, a man who's on his own faith journey, he says, and uh, he, he, he told me, he said, you know, uh, Matt, I realize that, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter, like, right, like, every one of us can interact with God in, like, kind of our own way, and I kind of just stopped, and I said, brother, Jesus said he is the way, so to deny that Jesus is the way is to deny what God himself has actually said, so brother, no, there are not many ways, and this psalm is very crystal clear that you've get, you're given two people in the universe here. Only two. There is no middle ground with these people. Now notice, like, this is not new. This psalm is not uh, saying something that the rest of the scriptures do not say. Joshua 24 says this. It calls the people of Israel. It says, now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in serenity and sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers. Serve beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will, we will serve the Lord. Notice Joshua is not saying there's this third way, right? It doesn't matter. Like you can kind of be not serving the Lord, but still okay. So there's only two paths, brothers and sisters. This is also what Jesus said. Uh, the Gospel of John opens up. Uh, and in verse 4 it says, In Jesus, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or comprehended it. So, right, even Jesus shows up on the scene, and the Gospel of John describes the world as being between two people, darkness and light. 
You either love the light and are uh, uh, drawn towards the light or you're repelled from the light because you love the darkness. John 3.16, world's famous, most famous verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So brothers and sisters, there's two pictures being painted here for us. Not a plurality of pictures, just simply two. Ephesians chapter 2, same thing. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, by the way, brothers, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen, don't let the world tell you that there's all kinds of different positions you can take on this matter, this matter of God and Christ and the scriptures and salvation. There's only one or two paths to be taken. As an introductory psalm, this psalm gives us a lens by which we should read the whole Psalter. It frames for us this division between the righteous and the wicked. Psalm 37, verse 1, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Psalm 2, 1, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Psalm 73, 2 and 3, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We should understand Psalm 1 as being the lens by which we not only read its psalm, but all the psalms. And not only that, but all the scriptures, right? Like, it's, it's, it's the good guys versus the bad guys, children. There is no in-between. Have you noticed lately, a lot of the remakes of movies, you know what they've done? They've taken what has historically been the bad guy, and what have they done? They've given you their origin stories. Right? What, what, if we're not careful, what this does is this creates a kind of a gray area. Right? So um, the 101 Dalmatians, right? uh, the bad lady in there, they just remade the movie. I don't know if you've watched it. I haven't. But here's what it does. Basically, it kind of takes you into her life and shows you how she ended up uh, wanting to kill 101 Dalmatians. Right? And what happens along the way, right? Disney's got this nailed down. Like You begin to sympathize with her. Like, you begin to say, oh, like, you know what? She's not actually that bad. Listen, brothers and sisters, we too will be carried along with the world if we are not held fast in the belief that there is only one of two paths. There is the righteous and the wicked. But notice the path of this blessed man. Blessed is the man. Now, 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 this is not, this, we gotta, we got to define some terms here, right? This, this blessedness. What does it mean? Is this simply happiness which fades and, and comes and goes along with whatever happens throughout our days? No, no, no. This is not a, a superficial happiness. This would be like a permanent happiness from which you cannot be shaken. This sort of blessedness is deeper than what you and I simply refer to as happy. You see, last night I had Taco Bell for dinner. And I love Taco Bell. Eating Taco Bell makes me happy. And yet that's not the same kind of happiness with which Psalm 1 opens up. This is a, this is a deeper 
perpetual, continuous joy. I don't think it's by accident that the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus opens his ministry in Matthew chapter 5, that he does so with a similar sounding refrain when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those of you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus, the psalm opens up with describing the, the ways between a good man and an evil man, the blessed man and the cursed man. And it says similarly, Jesus opens up his ministry in the Gospel of Matthew with defining this is what it means to be blessed. This is what the blessed person looks like. So all of life is two paths. There's two paths to life. There are not many paths to life. Notice next that the second observation here is that there's a means to arrive on this path. Look at verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now this is, you'll notice the verse opens up with a but, so let's, let's, let's rewind here to the end of, chapter, or the end of verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates Day and night. So there's two sources, two ways to live, only two. You're blessed or you're cursed. And, and notice here, he gives us the, the, there's a means by which to arrive at one of these two destinations. Notice firstly, the, the sources of influence. Right? Notice that there's this progression, right? If you've ever heard a, psalm or a sermon preached on Psalm 1, you, this has probably been pointed out to you. But first, the, the man is simply, uh, in, uh, he's simply walking by the way. And what's next? He, he begins to stop and listen to what the sinners are saying. Finally, he sits down, indicating some sort of like, influencing ma- manner himself. This downward progression from the blessed man. But notice the blessed man does not live like this. This is not a description of the blessed man's life. But what is then the means by which he arrives at his blessedness, right? Because we all want to be blessed. We all want to have this permanent happiness that never falters or fails. So what is his source of influence? It's the lights in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. Now, what the, the law, the word law here in our English Bibles comes from the, the, the Hebrew word Torah, right? Which simply means the instruction of the Lord. Here the psalmist means to point his readers back to the book of Moses, right? The first five books of Pentateuch. He wants to point them back. Understand, brothers and sisters, that if we want to live life correct, if we want to have the blessed life, we must study the scriptures. We must give our heart to the law of the Lord and understanding what it is he wants from us. But not only that, but 
this law of the Lord, it's not like this. He's not being driven there. He's not being driven there out of commandment. Right? In all of Psalm 1, there's no uh, imperative. There's no commandment saying that he, he, he needs to do this. So what is it that's driving the blessed man to the law of the Lord? Look at verse 2. It's his delight. It's his joy. How many of you, in reading your own scriptures, open up to the book of Leviticus and be like, Father, I love all this blood stuff. Great joy of my life, Father, is to read your word. And yet, that's exactly what the psalmist is calling us to. Not only that, but this also has echoes of Joshua. Chapter 1, verse 8, when it says, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Psalm 119, which oftentimes parallels Psalm 1, verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Understand, Christians, today for us, what this means is that there is no reality in which we love Christ without loving his word. There is no reality in which we love Christ without loving his word. Why? Because it's through the word that we come to love Christ. It's through reading the scriptures daily that we come to love our Savior more and more. It's through memorization of the scriptures that when we wake up in the middle of the night uh, with trouble of gas prices or Ukraine or whatever it may be that keeps you up at night. It's the memorization of the word that grounds us once more in the truth of God. It's through praying the scriptures when we don't know what else to pray that our delight begins to evolve. It begins to become more and greater than what it is without the word. So we need the word to love the word. This is why to get away from the scriptures, to away from daily reading, memorization, praying the scriptures, when we get away from these, it's often that our hearts actually become more hardened to it. So you say, well, pastor, like, I don't, I don't feel like I love the scriptures. Listen, my encouragement to you is, what are you doing about it? What are you doing about your lack of love for the word? Because this is a real work. The psalmist is calling us to engage in daily meditation, to not let it leave our thoughts and our minds. And so if you're saying, well, I just don't, I just don't feel like reading the Bible today, Pastor, I would say, what are you doing about that? This is the same advice I would give you if you came to me and said, Pastor, I just don't, I don't feel like I love my wife. I would say, well, that's okay. What are, you, what are you doing about it? How are you cultivating your rule of life in such a way to continually fall more in love with your wife? Now notice, this is a real work. But it's not a work in which we somehow put God in our debt. It's a real work we put our hands to. Right? This is the same as Jesus saying, be holy as I am holy. We are holy only in Christ Jesus. Don't hear me say that you can read the scriptures and then somehow earn salvation with God. Right? This is what the, actually the Pharisees did. This is why Jesus rebuked him in John chapter 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that, they, it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees 
because they thought they could just pick up their Bibles, read it every day, pray it every day, memorize it, and somehow not accept the Jesus to which they pointed to. So we always read the scriptures, including this psalm, Psalm 1, in view of Christ and his finished work. You see, it's Christ who gives us the delight of our hearts. It's Christ who will make us fall more in love with the Savior who died for our sins. Thirdly, notice that there's a, there's a picture the psalmist gives us here. He doesn't just say, like, it's what I love about the Psalms, right? It's just not like black and white commandments. It's, he's like, it's flowery words. It's pictures. It's, it's words that cause in us uh, some kind of visceral reaction. Look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. So now stop right there. What imagery comes to your mind? This isn't... This isn't boring. Young people, listen to me. The Bible is not boring. But what should come to our minds is probably images of of a desert. But in that desert, there's this oasis and a stream of water that is life-giving. This flourishing image of a tree is meant to describe a believer's life. There's a few uh, specific blessings from this picture. Look, notice that the tree doesn't merely grow. This isn't random chance. It is planted. The Hebrews would actually mean to say that it's like transplanted in some way. You see, trees grow randomly in a forest. It takes a landscaper or a gardener for a tree to be planted. A landscaper plans where to plant her trees for height, for color, for shade, and for a host of other reasons. In the same way, God chooses where to place you and I for our good, to bring order and beauty in this world. There's a purpose and a plan to your life. It's true. Nothing in your life is haphazard. You see, the psalmist would also say, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Yet as they were, was none of them. This sense of God's planning grows into the second blessing that comes from this text. This happy man or, or woman is planted by streams of water. This word streams literally canals. This tree is intentionally planted by not one but several irrigation canals that flow with life-giving water. The third blessing is the tree that yields its fruit in its seasons. As you delight and meditate on God's word, listen, here's what will begin to happen to you. You will begin to produce fruit in your life. Every season, every area of your life, you will begin to produce this fruit. Now notice the psalmist doesn't give us, well, they'll be a, a nicer person, or they'll be a more loving person, or a calmer person. No, no, no. Like the, 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 the fruit that it would produce is too numerable for this psalmist to, to pin down for us. So many. The godly man or woman produces thanksgiving in seasons of plenty, faith in seasons of doubt, patience in suffering, peace in turmoil, mercy when wrong, gentleness when falsely accused, strength in temptation, humility in leadership, and prayer in all seasons. Notice also that the leaf does not wither. Right, we're getting ready to head into the, the heat of summer, right? And uh, I imagine some of y'all's lawns look pretty lush, pretty green. But as the sun begins to beat down on what's going to happen to your grass, it's going to turn brown. It's going to begin to get burned. It's going to uh, become like a skillet on, on your grass. It's just 
how it happens. And yet, notice in contrast that this man, this blessed man, this blessed woman has roots that go below, deep below the surface to drink from the waters that the gardener supplies. You see, when an unbelieving person sees your life and they see the blazing sun uh, of temptation, of, of persecution beating down on you and they don't see your leaves begin to wilt and fade like everyone else's, then there can only be one explanation. As we're drinking from the waters that He supplies. This last blessing comes at the end of verse 3. Notice he says that in all that he does, he prospers. Now listen, prosperity preachers will will read this with dollar signs. They'll say, okay, there it is. Pastor, he says, whatever you're going to do, you're going to perish. Listen, uh, to to prosper, what the Hebrew verb translated prosper means is to succeed, to accomplish the work you set out to do. What work is that that the psalmist is calling us to? Delighting in God. Meditating on His law day and night. In the same way, what Jesus did on the cross, He truly accomplished His work. He succeeded through suffering and death. Now notice, all three of these verses are given to what the godly man does, what the blessed man does. It's only here that we begin to hear about the wicked. But with the wicked, it is not so. You see, in contrast to the stable tree standing by the water, chaff is extremely dry and unstable, easily blown away by the winds. Note the contrast here between the tree and the chaff. The tree is stable, unmoving. The chaff is wind blown, always being driven away. The tree is well watered, but the chaff is dry as dust. The tree is fruit-bearing, but the chaff is worthless. The tree is alive. The chaff is dead. You see, the wicked are compared to chaff because they are unstable and actually worthless. They provide no fruit, no shade. They, They provide no utility. They are not grounded in God's teaching. They do not bear fruit. They are dead. And this is what the Scriptures mean when they say that all of us were once dead in our sins and trespasses. The life of a wicked person, a life lived apart from God, is not just empty. It's also meaningless and worthless as a shaft. You say, Pastor, that sounds harsh. I'm saying it's true. It's true. The wicked life has no weight of worth, no root against the temptest, no abiding in God's world. These are the two paths the psalmist wants us to understand. But notice finally that that there's a a final reality that the psalmist points us to. Look at verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see, verse 5 continues. It says, therefore, like, because of all this, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Similarly, as the, as the blessed person does not stand in the way of sinners, so here the wicked will not stand in the judgment. As the parallel line, no sinners in the congregation of the righteous suggests. Right? Initially, the psalm, like the, the original audience reading this, would have understood that this judgment refers to the judgment made by the righteous. 
The righteous would often meet at the city gate, and there they would adjudicate cases, providing guilty or innocence. And the psalmist is saying, when that happens, in the congregation of the righteous, the the wicked will not stand. They will not stand in judgment. They're too light when weighted in the scales. But notice this judgment also has this fuller sense of God's final judgment. You see, the Old Testament would often frequently use shaft to portray those falling under God's judgment. In the New Testament, John the Baptist uses the same image to predict what Jesus would do. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the shaft, he will burn with unquenchable fire. Here, John's speaking about final judgment. The righteous and the wicked are all heading in opposite directions. Of the righteous, this psalm says, in all that they do, they prosper. And of the wicked, it says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Verse 6 gives us the reasons for these opposite destinations. Notice, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, or knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, notice the Lord is actively watching over the righteous. This is the first time in the whole psalm that we actually hear about the Lord. And yet, it's the Lord who has been there all along. It's the Lord's teaching, making His people happy. He's the divine gardener, transplanting the wild shoot by streams of water where it can bear fruit, and judging the wicked in the final judgment. The Lord watches or knows the way of the righteous. Like intimately knows. He embraces. He cares for His children. The Lord protects their life so that they do not perish. His eye is upon them. His ear is open to them. And it is Christ's spirit in them that abides forever. You see, you and I can be assured of Christ's loving protection every day of our life. He will secure our future. But notice the wicked, it is not so. The wicked have no future and are destined to perish. Psalm 1 ends with the words of the way of the wicked will perish. No divine action is explicitly predicated. Like, he doesn't say, like, here's how he's going to do it. He simply says, it's true. The way of the wicked will perish. The implication is that without God's help, without God's intervention, life will always lead to death. It is only with God that it is possible to actually sustain life. So here, in conclusion, let me wrap this up. The message of Psalm 1 is simple. There are two ways, but only one way has life. The way of the wicked and the way of the righteous are the two ways. In contrast to the wicked who will perish, the Lord watches over the righteous who delight in the teaching of the Lord. So the question for us is which way will we choose? Will we walk with the wicked? Or stand with those who are right with God. So if we want to live the best life that we can, I think we all do, then there's only one way to actually do it. It's by loving God. It's by accepting Christ for who He is. It's by giving ourselves to the Scriptures and understanding them and always pointing ourselves back to Christ. If we are wise, we will choose to order our life according to God's teaching. The question for us is, how are we doing? 
Because there's this implication that when we read the Psalms, that oftentimes, because we're on this side of the cross and we're reformed in our theology, we, we say things like, well, there are none righteous. Doesn't Paul say that in Romans chapter 3? There are none righteous, no, not one. And so we come to the Psalms and it's talking about this righteous man and this wicked man. And we say, well, obviously we're all wicked. Because that's what the scriptures teaches. And yet the Psalms are wrote in such a way that we should understand that if we're following Christ in our lives, that we, we should identify with the righteous. Because it's Christ who is the blessed man here. He is the one who fulfilled all the law of God. Never, think about this, never for a moment did the law of God and, and the teachings of the scriptures ever leave Jesus' mind. Never for a moment. Always there, always present, always actively shaping how he lived his life. He's the righteous one. And so when the scriptures say that we are in Christ, that means that when we read the Psalms, this is going to be important as we study the book of Psalms throughout the summer. When we read the the Psalms, we should understand our lives not as simply wicked uh, as apart from God, which we are, but with Christ that we actually get to partake in the benefits of the blessed man. You and I somehow, some way, get to enjoy what it means to be a tree planted by rivers of flowing water. So you say, well, how do we, how do we know? How do we, how do we know if we're the blessed man? Listen, do you love the Lord? Do you delight for Christ? Do you love his word? He said, well, not always. Listen, you pray for that. Pray for God to actually change our hearts. It's weird, right? Like, we think that we somehow can't pray for that. Like, it's got to be some, some sort of spontaneity within us. Like, like, it's hard work. We should seek after God. We should strive to be more Christ-like every day. This is the work that we're called to, brothers and sisters. The question is, will we choose it? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for the scriptures that continually point us to Christ. Lord, if we want to be like the trees of living water, Father, I pray that we would give our lives to you and to knowing you more, Father. May we fill our days. May we spend our money and spend our time and spend the gifts you've given us pouring back into other people around us, coming back to you, Father. May we chase after you all the days of our lives. Father, where we fall short, I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us with the grace and mercy which you abundantly give. Father, I pray you help us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, at this time, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and take communion. So I'm going to ask the, the brothers to come. Uh, and uh, just as a, as a quick note, I've, uh, I've heard... The messaging loud and clear that we uh, we really don't like the little wafers. So uh, I found by the providence of God an old recipe that was given to me from this church uh, that was baked for us. And so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna pass it out uh, and uh, we'll see how it goes. See how it goes. So uh, we'll pass out the the cup and and take that together as well. As they're passing it out, let me just encourage you that uh, if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe who Christ is, what he's 
Don, just let the, let, the, let the elements pass by you. Don't take them unworthily, as the scriptures would say. Remember that taking communion together, let's go ahead and all stand. As we take communion together this morning, we remind ourselves that we are surrounded weekly by brothers and sisters who believe in the same gospel that you and I believe. This is what Paul had to say about the Lord's Supper. He said, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Uh, For in the first place, when you come together as a church... I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As they pass out the cup this morning, uh, notice that what Paul's writing to here is that this is This is something we do together. This is not an individual act wherein we simply isolate and consider our own selves. We consider the church body. This is why he's so adamant that there there not be disunity among the people. as we drink the cup may we be reminded there's a, there's a banquet coming and the bread will be so much better and the cup will be so much fuller this is what Paul said in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me Brother Philip to come lead us in a quick hymn and then give the benediction.